Well, this is this is definitely my least favorite podcast Hi, and welcome to this bonus edition of Backup Central's Restore It All. This is your host, Debbie Curtis Preston. Last week, we interviewed Lindsay Schultz, MD, MPH, which means she has a doctorate in medicine and a master's in public health. We talked to her about what exactly is the coronavirus and COVID-19 and just help us wrap our head around the what. This week's episode is going to focus on why is the response to this so different than the response to previous things that were also really scary, things like SARS and MERS, and even the flu virus of H1N1 back in 2009? Why is this reaction so extreme by comparison? The next episode, which will be on Monday, will focus on the hope. Sadly, this episode will be quite negative because it's going to focus on why this virus is so much more dangerous than previous viruses and therefore why we have to react differently. So let's continue with our interview with Lindsay Schultz, MD, MPH. So you you mentioned our best attempts to get a handle on the the death rate right now. What how does it compare to other diseases. So if you're looking at like the the regular seasonal flu, um, it's about 0.1%. H1N1 actually ended up being a little bit lower at um, at similar, it could have been in the same range. Actually, let me rephrase that. It was within the same range as the seasonal flu. Okay. But because it was this new version of the flu, there wasn't really a good way to predict if that's where it would end up. You know, it's so you're so as someone looking at that in April could say, you know, oh, you know, it it could end up there could be enough immunity, there could be enough seasonality to this that it ends up almost looking like a normal flu season. Or because this is new, there could be a major um, outbreak with this with many complications. So the best rate that we have for this is 1%. Right. And so that's 10 times as bad as the seasonal flu. Yes. Yes. And and, you know, I'm also slightly morbid conversations we've had when you were talking about the original SARS, because it was mostly affecting people so severely, the, the case fatality rate for SARS was 10%. And when we're talking about MERS, um, again, which is it's easily spread in hospitals, um, not so much everywhere else to the point that they have two different r naughts for MERS, mm. you spread it to about the about four people in the hospital, it's only about 0.6 if you're out in the community. So you're looking at this picture that you're getting really severe disease that's really spread by, you know, doing procedures in the hospital. The case fatality rate for MERS right now is about 35%. So when I'm looking at something like COVID-19, I'm saying 1% of what's going to be a big number because it is spreading so easily is going to be a lot of people. And what I'm thinking about after we deal with with the immediate part of this pandemic of making sure hospital supplies are stood up, making sure that we're finding, you know, better testing, we're finding better ways to, to track people and isolate them as need be to get 
treatments and vaccines is leaving something in place for next time because this pandemic, it's it's going to be bad just sheerly because of the percentage of people that are going to catch this. That that one percent, you know, if you say, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the U.S. is going to catch this and then one percent of that is going to die, that can be in the ballpark of a million people. Four weeks ago, that sounded insane. It yeah. still sounds it still sounds a little insane. It does. And, and so so let me ask you this. So and, and because this sort of goes at the heart of why I wanted to have you on here. You know, I, I see memes on Facebook and, and, my, and my favorite one, I sent it to you and, it, and it's got, and, my, and by favorite, I mean, it's, <laughs> it best illustrates the thing I'm trying to get at here. And it, and it was a picture where it had, uh, you know, um, the different, it named a lot of these uh, diseases that, we, that we've been talking mm-hmm. about. And basically it's, uh, you know, it had a date and SARS and we're all going to die. The, the date immerse and we're all going to die and swine flu, we're all going to die. And then, um, you know, the same thing now. And, and of course we, we didn't all die. Right. So, right. but, and, 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 but really importantly, we didn't shut down the world for mm-hmm. swine flu. Right. I know it's different. I know you, you prefer from a disease standpoint to compare it more to SARS. We definitely didn't shut down the, the world to SARS. But the most recent thing that we had that was that was as big as this or close to anywhere near the size was the swine flu, at least to my memory. Mm-hmm. We didn't shut down the world. Why are we shutting down the world right now uh, when we didn't do that back then? Um, you know, my my best and it, it's just a guess. You know, I think you could only really venture an opinion as to to why the response to this is is so different. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we have a little bit more time We've had a little bit more preparation to see what this is and what it looks like. Um, I know you asked about, you know, the role social media is playing in this. And is that, you know, is that keying people up too much? For me, what social media in this meant, it meant that around the end of December, um, when you first started hearing rumors about a cluster of unidentified pneumonia in Wuhan in China, mm-hmm. that you're also, you know, hearing from doctors going, there is a severe flu here, you know, a severe pneumonia, a severe something that is different. Our hospitals are getting overrun. We are all getting sick. And you could watch that. You could see, you know, doctors and nurses posting what that looked like in Wuhan. You know, you could see the the doctor who had been on TV arguing for something is happening here. We need to be aggressive. We need to get a handle on this. And then a few weeks later, seeing that he got sick and died from this same virus. So those of us that are we're sort of like looking at this, you know, knowing that, you know, this is where SARS had originally sort of brewed, this is where some of the avian flus had sort of brewed, we're worried about what that would mean. And then you start to see the hospitals in Wuhan get overrun. You start to see how fast this is spreading. You see the Chinese government after delaying for a while act quickly to shut everything down. And so, you know, the numbers you see coming out of, of China, where it's, you know, a case fatality rate of maybe two, maybe three, were after all of that aggressive effort was put in place. So what that, you know, does for somebody like me is, is what would that death toll have looked like had they not done that? And then you get to see it go from, you know, being an epicenter in China to one in Iran to the one in Italy. And in Italy, 
you really see what happened when they just didn't get a hold of it fast enough. And that was happening in probably mid to late February. You're seeing the same things. You're seeing hospitals overrun. You're seeing, um, you know, doctors saying we don't have a way to treat anyone. You're seeing that because they do not have enough ventilators, there's a new rule in place that essentially anyone over 60 will not be a priority to be put on a ventilator because there aren't enough. You know, you see cases of the the 70-year-old priest who offers his ventilator to a younger person and then dies. You see a video of, you know, someone in Lombardy in that region saying, you know, here's our newspaper from last week. You know, here's what the normal obituary pages look like. It's a page or page and a half. Here's just this week, just a week later, and it's page after page after page of people in Italy that have died because you did not have the resources to try to take care of them. So I think because you could you could see that playing out everywhere that that you knew that you know everyone was was vocally saying for a while this is what it's going to take to not have the health systems overwhelmed because this is coming on so fast. I think that's the key difference for, in terms of when I look at it is this issue it's not necessarily the number of people that are dying it's this idea that it's overwhelming the hospital systems right mm-hmm. so you look at in Italy you look in in Spain where, you know, that again, you say social media and the media contribute to this. I see pictures of patients in Spain lying on blankets in a hall. They, they don't even have right. beds, right? Uh, that it completely overwhelms the, the healthcare system. And I think that's the thing that maybe is scaring us, right? Is because if, if that happens, well, it's already starting to happen in New York, right? Right. Where roughly half of our, we, by the way, we passed, you know, 100,000 cases in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, today. The, that, that, and 46,000 of them are apparently in New York. That it's happening in New York, which is why they're standing up uh, the hospital there in, uh, in the Javits Center. Uh, and they're also, they're talking about ships. They're doing ships over here in, in, uh, in California. That's the thing to me, I think, that's the scariest. Because if that happens, you don't have anywhere um, to go if you have something else happen to you. Right. And the problem is we, you know, we know we're probably undercounting the number of people that are dying directly from coronavirus because, you know, not everyone can get tested. Not everyone that calls the Italian equivalent of 911 makes it to a hospital before they die. But then there's also all of these other cases, all of this other, you know, normal to and fro with the healthcare system that is all put on hold because there's just not enough hands, there's not enough beds. And we won't be able to get a handle on that until, you know, you look back and say, you know, how many people in in this city in Italy normally die in in March of a given year? And the best estimates they're looking at right now are, you know, it's five times the normal number in a place that may only be reporting a couple of coronavirus fatalities. So there's there's a big potential for it to be a big, big tragedy. And I know for for a lot of people, you know, to see things shutting down for, you know, for people to see, you know, everyone begging to stand up, you know, hospital beds and make vents and, you know, talking about, you know, leaving, you know, medications and masks and things for the healthcare workers. That all to me is a sign of hope because it means that we are trying to put in place 
enough of a support system to maybe help the hospital stay standing while this happens. I know when we had talked earlier, you were also mentioning uh, that if these cities don't get under control, then the rural areas start getting affected as well, then they have no place to go either. Because I think typically living in a large urban city, we just think, oh, yeah, it's just our area. But we don't realize that a lot of these rural areas don't actually have the facilities for like hospital beds, ICUs, things like that. That's 100% true. I mean, the, the problem problem with trying to compare the the outbreak in the U.S. to anywhere else is because we are somewhere that has such dense urban centers and then just, you know, miles and miles of space. So what you're looking at here is different cities that could be sort of, you know, a, a tinderbox. We have, you know, New York and, you know, Seattle seems to have partially gotten it under control, but then Detroit, New Orleans, Atlanta, places that have the potential to be a Wuhan, that it overwhelms those systems and while those systems are still recovering, that's when it will start to appear in more of the rural areas. And at that point, there's just no slack left in the system. There's just nowhere to go. Let me push back. So we talk a lot about you know the deaths from this uh, virus, uh, and and we've talked we've talked about the hospitalization rates. Why? And again, I, I don't know. I'm I'm sure you don't have the answer to this question, but I know that it's in the mind of some people, so I'm going to ask it. Mm-hmm. The the seasonal flu kills fifty to sixty, uh, what is it, thousand people a year in the U.S. and close somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million people a year. This happens every year, year in year out, and it happens without even a notice. Why this versus that? Why why does this get all that treatment and and all those deaths get no treatment? So there's there's a few different ways that I might answer that. One, I think we should be way more concerned about the seasonal flu than we are. Um, you know, hence every medical professional and every mom you've ever met yelling at you to go get your flu shot. Curtis, get your flu shot. <laughs> I got my flu shot. So, so I think it's, it's easy when something is just part of the everyday background of your life. You know, you don't, you don't put a lot of thought into, you know, every year people die of the flu. Flu is just something that's around every year. You know, you hear a lot of surprise in, you know, parts of the media, certain officials that, oh, you know, the flu does kill 40,000 Every year to me, that's a sign of, oh, we should be concerned about that. You know, there's there's also the same, you know, everyday life of automobile accidents cause a huge number of deaths in the United States. But because those are sort of part of your everyday experience, you don't notice them as much. You know, it's it's always the the example they always bring up of like there'll be one shark attack, one place somewhere on the globe, and that covers headlines for days. And everyone is afraid to go in the water because it's this, it's this something new. It's something different, which means it catches your attention. Um, so I think that's part of it. And the other thing from a health perspective of, you know, why wouldn't you respond to, you know, this the same way you do with the flu, the health system is built in such a way that we have a handle on how many flu patients are going to show up every year. Mm. You know, the health system. So it's you're expecting a, you know, a surge of flu cases in, you know, December to maybe March maybe an uptick in the fall again. So so this that is built in into the system. So, you know, part of when you're looking at something like coronavirus, you know, there's not a lot of flu in the country right now because everybody's washing their hands. <laughs> um, but that also means, you know, coming into the warmer months when flus, flu patients would not be taking up beds in hospitals, that will get just a little bit more slack in the system as time goes on, because they've accounted for, you know, so many flu patients show up every year, you know, they're there in February, they're there in March, and then they're gone. 
So that that pattern of disease is built into what we expect. So, you know, we wouldn't we would worry if it was a severe flu season, but we would have an idea of, oh, you know, we need to scale up by 10 percent, 20 percent to take care of this. With this, when you're talking about needing every hospital to scale up by 100 percent, it's just an order of magnitude different than what we're used to expecting. So did, do you think we underreacted to uh, H1N1 or or are we overreacting to this? Um, for me, and, and this might be just my health background kicking in. Um, I do not think we are overreacting to this. You know, things that I hear is this is just like the flu. We overreacted. We, we now you say, in in some sense, we underreacted to uh, SARS and MERS. And uh, by the way, why why do I keep thinking it's called MRSA? I thought that <laughs> what, it's very similar. It's very similar to how it's pronounced. is MRSA another thing? MRSA is MRSA is the methicillin resistant Staph aureus. Um, oh, like the skin okay. Infection so the, not to be confused get. with MERS. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nope. All right. The other is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Oh, okay. Totally different. All right. So, you know, in some sense, we underreacted to swine flu in that we didn't shut down the world the way we are. And in another sense, some would say we overreacted to swine flu because there was a sense of like, we're all going to die. Like, it, 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 I, rem- I remember saying, I remember being concerned about the swine flu. Uh, it wasn't like, I, I don't remember it being like this. So just, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, we, I heard you say that like, maybe it feels worse because we see all that, you know, we see the stuff from the doctor, we see this, the pictures, we see the pictures from Spain, right. which, you know, it feels worse. I, I would say it's, it, those pictures are adequately capturing the potential, you know, devastation of this virus. So I wouldn't say that those are amplifying you know, unduly okay. a, a response, you know. So this isn't a media-caused panic. I think, Curtis, part of it is also just the fact that technology has come such a long way that it is now readily available to everyone, right? right. What's going on across the world. Right. Well, I, I guess what I'm just, I'm, because there are there are those who say that this is a media-created frenzy, right? That because of what you just said, because everybody has an internet connection and everybody can see the stuff. And so everybody getting scared. And so they're, they're saying that we're, we're overreacting. Uh, you know, we, we didn't do this for, you know, we didn't do this for the swine flu. Uh, so why are we doing it for this? And what I'm hearing you say is the swine flu didn't threaten to overwhelm our hospital, uh, our hospitals the way this does. Right. Right. Because it was, it was a flu. It was, even if it's something new, and you're worried could be worse than mm-hmm. a normal flu. You you sort of in the back of your head have a way to deal with it. You have a platform to to make a vaccine quickly. You know you have there. There's things in the public health and medical playbook that know how to deal with this. When it's something as new as these coronaviruses, and each one has been a little bit different. You know there there's nothing that that prepared us for you know saying we need thirty thousand ventilators in New York in six weeks. You know right. there's there's nothing in the medical playbook that goes oh here's how we do that. But but we've had other coronaviruses in the past, right? And yes, but they just the, I guess weren't as severe as this. Right, they're they're they were not as contagious, so they did not spread person to person as easily. So you weren't seeing community spread of you know 
people out at a party in Connecticut or, you know, people at a ball game or, you know, the, the locker room of apparently the entire NBA, yeah. you know, so those, those other coronaviruses didn't have the same features, the same like genetic, like on the actual, like what the virus is features that let it be spread like this. Just going forward, do you think that hospitals will change their playbooks? Yes. I, I absolutely 100% think <laughs> that um, there was planning put in place at a federal level after the Ebola crisis in 2014, which really in the United States wasn't a crisis. It was a crisis for the people in Liberia and Sierra Leone and Guinea that were dealing with it on the ground. Here, I think we had one or two imported cases and you know fear of people coming back that had been treating patients there. But because, you know, the the federal government had to deal with the question of, well, what happens if this happens here? They put started putting a pandemic group in, you know, places like the National Security Council, started devising, you know, chains of commands and protocols for how we would respond. And I will carefully say those have been either cut or underfunded in the last three and a half years that that playbook was gone. Um, It just wasn't present. We used to have a surveillance system, meaning people out in, you know, in places in Africa, in Asia, here, looking at, you know, different animals, whether it's birds or bugs or bats, to see, is there a potential for another one of these zoonotic viruses jumping from this animal reservoir to people? And back as far as 2015, there was some indication that a coronavirus or something like it could make it back out of, you know, a bat reservoir somewhere at some point in the near future. So we we had some idea that, you know, we we might not have been able to completely prepare for this. You know, a 1% CFR in something spreading so quickly is huge and is hard to plan for, but there would have been more preparedness on the ground As opposed to, you know, right now, I think what will happen is each state is going to come up with a very solid game plan as to how to deal with this going forward. I do not think you will ever catch a state like New York off guard again with this um, or California or Ohio or, um, you know, Washington. But it's going to be at a state by state level rather than something national. Um, For the the immediate future. Um, I do think quite soon there will be, again, a, a big federal response stood up so that just like, you know, South Korea had the experience with, you know, SARS and avian flu and MERS had stuff ready to go. I do think there will soon be, you know, everything ready to go at the federal level as well. But for the immediate future, I would be looking to the governors and to um, mayors of cities and things like that. I did want to ask you one other question about harm harms reduction. Mm-hmm. Your calculations, when you do that, does it also take into account economic harm or are you um, just looking at people harm? It varies. Um, you know, just like, you know, I've, I've seen a couple of, of studies trying to, you know, start parsing out, like, at what point would the economy being on ice really be doing more damage than would be done from the pandemic coming back? And some, it's it's straight up a matter of dollars converting, you know life years into dollars and figuring it out like that. So sometimes they do it like that. Sometimes they don't. I usually try to just, um, I I look at the economic cost of the policy being implemented 
you know, versus the possible benefits that may come from it and or possible damage. But, you know, I you try to avoid doing um, human life as dollar value in public health as much as you can because that messages so badly. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, I mean, so, um, so in the in the back of your head, you 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 may be thinking, you know, how much would it cost to to treat this one patient versus other patients? But you're you're probably going to have other data that backs up that conclusion the same way. Yeah, the optics of we need to restart the economy, but restarting the economy will result in more dead people. How many deaths is restarting the economy? okay with. Right. So so the way I've seen that more messaged is even if you try to restart the economy and all of these people are sick, that's not going to restart the economy yeah. because you're you're you know you're just adding back into the the system. So. Oh, this is this is definitely my least favorite podcast recording. <laughs> <that> we, <laughs> going to the part. Yeah, let's get to the hope part. Yeah. So But there there is there is hope. There is actually a lot of hope and good news that we'll be discussing on the episode that will air this Monday, April 6th. But unfortunately, this episode needs to end here just for uh, time purposes. And then I'll finish up editing the rest of this interview, and you will hear it Monday, April 6th. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I know it's a departure from our normal topics, but it's a pretty important topic right now, so I thought we should cover it. So, Make sure to subscribe so that once we get back to our normal topics, you'll be able to restore it all. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spit. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it, instead it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth the space.
just for once it'll be completely done maybe 